Okay, um, I'd like to uh, uh, introduce the, uh, tonight's talk, which is um, one in the series of LSE Works Talks, which are sponsored by um, Sage Publications. Um, and the speaker tonight is going to be um, John Van Rienen, who is going to speak about where is future growth going to come from. Um, I'll just say a few words about John um, before, uh, before, he begin, before he begins his talk. Um, so John is one of the leading economists in this country, um, and he's currently um, Professor of Economics at the London School of Economics, and he's the director of the largest um, economics research centre in the country, um, the Centre for Economic Performance, uh, which uh, does a lot of work on various questions um, in applied economics. Um, so John um, is, uh, has been Professor here at the LSE since um, October 2003. Um, he received a BA from Cambridge um, quite a long time ago, um, his PhD from uh, UCL in 1993, um, and he's worked and published very widely on, in, in various areas of economics, including economics of innovation, uh, labor markets, uh, productivity. Um, he's also got uh, quite a lot of different uh, experiences through his career. This has involved being a senior policy advisor uh, to the Secretary of State for Health uh, um, some time ago and worked in many um, international organizations. He's been a visiting professor at the University of California at Berkeley. Um, he's a research fellow at the Institute of Fiscal Studies, was a professor at um, University College London before moving, before moving to the LSE. And he was a partner in Lexicon, Com Lexicon Limited, um, a company uh, that was, uh, I think, doing stuff about new technology, if I, if I recall right. Um, so anyway, um, so John's uh, published extensively in various areas of economics, and as I say, he's going to talk about where is future growth going to come from um, um, tonight. So the way the talk will be structured, John will talk for about 50 minutes. Uh, Jonathan Haskell, who's the discussant, uh, will we'll give a discussion for 10, 15 minutes after that, and then we'll open up to the, to the floor to um, questions after that. So I'll hand you over to John. Okay, so thank you very much, Steve, for that overly kind introduction. Um, I'm going to talk tonight about um, the issue which a lot of people are talking about, which is growth. And uh, where on earth is it going to uh, come from? And I want to start off by showing you a kind of graph which looks at our experience in Britain of different recessions. So um, what this graph does is it plots out um, five different recessions and shows you the kind of cumulative change of national output over the course of the recession. So uh, the, the blue line you can see it, which is current, is the uh, current recession, or the recession hopefully we're emerging out of. And it kind of tracks um, what's happened. And if you follow that blue line down, you can see that for the first 12 months of the recession, there was a, a fall of about 6.5% of our national output. That's a lot. And just to give you an idea about how big that is, um, if you compare that to the red line coming down, the one which says 1930s, that shows you what it was like during the Great Depression of the 1930s. And you can see that for the first 12 months of the recession after 2008, in fact, the fall of GDP was actually slightly greater than it was in the Great Depression, which you, know, you can imagine that was a pretty scary moment that we were, we were facing during, during, during that period of 2008. Now, subsequently, as we know, there's been some recovery from that 
So you can see that you know the blue line, our current recession kind of troughs out after about a year, 18 months, and then starts coming out. And the, the end of that line is uh, 2000, third quarter 2010. And by that point, you can see that we're more or less like the green line. And the green line was the 1980s, which was before the current recession, the worst recession since the 1930s. So, you know, we're currently, in a way, as bad as it was in the 1980s, which was pretty bad. Um, so you, you can see that the, 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 serious, the seriousness of the recession that we've been through, the, you know, the Great Recession, and that's going to frame a lot of what I'm talking about, because the question is, well, you know, how you know, are we now in recovery? What can we do to assure that recovery? And also, what, what are things that we like when we're going forward? The other two show you the other, eight, the other recessions, or minor recessions, the 1970s and 1990s. So the context of this is um, that um, after the coalition government was elected last year, we began uh, an austerity program, uh, as you know, to try and uh, rein in the size of the budget deficit. Um, the, as, as I'll describe later on, the austerity program is, is the uh, biggest consolidation of the budget since the Second World War. That's what the two apostrophes mean, World War II. And um, the, the Chancellor has argued that uh, there is, you know, that's plan A, the austerity program. There's no need for a plan B because um, the, you know, the economy is on, on the road to recovery. Um, it's, it's, uh, we, we have to take this uh, medicine in order, in order to get through it, and uh, a plan B would, would be dangerous. So one of, one of the things in my talk is uh, uh, my suggestion we actually do need a plan B, because I don't think we're out of the woods yet. Um, the two bits of bad news we had over the last month was, first of all, uh, the economy actually in the last quarter of 2010 actually shrank by half a percentage point. And we also got some bad news that Pfizer was closing down its uh, research lab, which was also the, uh, the creator of the well-known drug uh, Viagra, originally developed to uh, help people with heart palpitations. They discovered there was a side effect, which turned into a $1 billion a year uh, um, industry. Um, so, you know, if we look at the recession of the recent recession numbers in terms of the growth of quarterly GDP, this is another way to look at it, then you can see that it looked like you know, things got bad and then things seemed to be getting better, a kind of a V-shape. But then at the end of, two, at the end of 20, uh, 2010, growth kind of plummeted. And um, basically, we're just hoping it's the wrong kind of snow which caused that plummeting of GDP. Um, the, uh, the worry is that the recovery is actually faltering. So the ONS actually tell us, even if you took out the effects of the bad weather, growth would be basically flat, which is not very um, you know, palatable for coming out of recession. And the previous calls also looked pretty, uh, pretty bad as well, not very good. So the, the concern is that we're not really out of the woods. And um, the risk is that instead of having a nice uh, kind of V-shaped recovery, we, we could potentially uh, be heading back into an area of, of very, low, very low growth. So um, I'm going to argue that uh, we definitely need to plan B as an alternative austerity, but we also need a plan V. So we need something which uh, helps us get back onto, uh, onto that, that growth in the same way, um, the, uh, in some sense, the properties of Viagra had an uplifting effect in the health arena. We need a plan V for an uplifting effect for the British economy. And uh, the way I think we need to get that is to rethink some of the current policies that we're involved with. Uh, I'm going to argue that many of the, the macroeconomic policies that we're having at the moment, uh, the austerity program is actually going too fast, too quickly. Uh, we definitely need some era of austerity, but I think I'm going to argue that it's 
more severe than we need to go through. But perhaps more importantly, and this is the Plan V idea, the, the long-term policies we have to think of are things which are going to support growth. And there are many things happening at the moment which are not supporting growth, in fact, doing the opposite. I want to kind of look, look at what that type of plan would be, what would be a strategy for growth, as people like Richard Lambert have been arguing the outgoing director of the CBI, uh, in order to kind of solidify our, our recovery. Um, and in the context of that, you know, I'm going to look you know, at some of the evidence we have from economic research. In particular, I'm going to show you that, in fact, if you look at our performance overall as a country since the mid-1990s, we actually had uh, you know, some improvements in terms of our overall income growth. Um, nevertheless, despite that improvement since the mid-1990s, there still remains a big productivity gap between Britain and other leading countries. And the two reasons for that, I'm going to argue, are to do, on the one hand, with technology, with innovation, and on the other hand, to do with bad management. And we need policies to kind of deal with both of those in order to uh, lift our growth rate in the long run. So technology you might be familiar with. Management you might say, well, you know, is that, does that really matter so much? And I argue, in fact, management does matter a lot. So uh, here's, uh, here's pictures of three managers um, who you might recognize. Um, one from the UK version of the office, one from the US version of the office, and uh, Basil Fawlty. And I'm going to argue that these three men are critical for growth. So in terms of thinking about management, a lot of the problem that I think we have is bad management, and we have to think about ways to try and improve that. So uh, I think these, these guys are actually quite important for thinking about growth. Interestingly enough, one of the areas of British comparative advantage is the exports of television shows about bad managers. So that does suggest there's something, there's something interesting going on here that we need to, we need, we need to deal with. Uh, and that journey talking through about, about management is going to take us to some rather strange places. So, um, you know, a lot of the research I'm going to describe has actually been uh, going around and doing the unusual thing for economists about talking to people. Uh, so it's going to take us through some, you know, pretty well-managed factories. There's a factory floor from Ericsson through to uh, some uh, state-owned telecoms factories in Belarus where everybody appears to be on some mysterious break away from the uh, rather 1950s-looking machines, all the way through to some textile plants outside Mumbai where we've been running some experiments looking at the effect of management on productivity. Okay, so here's the outline. I'm going to first of all talk about you know, how is the UK doing. Then I'm going to talk about why we have this productivity gap, or I think we have a productivity gap. Then talk about um, these two sets of policies. Plan B, the potential alternative to our kind of short-run policies in the next few years. And then also the long-run, the kind of the V plan to try and uh, get us out of, uh, in the longer run, uh, our slower growth path. Okay, so the first thing I'm going to put up, I mean this, um, I, I was kind of surprised actually when I found this out, but this shows the UK growth performance since 1997, looking at what economists think is you know, one of the key measures of material well-being, which is GDP per capita, so output per person uh, between 1997 and 2010, so last year, so including the recession years. So um, when you look at this, it's actually kind of interesting because in terms of kind of UK's annual average growth rates, Britain actually has done pretty well compared to many of our other major countries. We've actually had faster growth per capita than um, the, other, the other, you know, the US, Germany, France, or Japan. I haven't, if I put Italy here, if Italy would be about 0.5%. Uh, so, you know, you can see that, you know, Mr. Berlusconi has, uh, has been other, had other things distracting him during, during this period. Um, but... Uh, even if you look at other countries which you think have been doing pretty well, like Germany and the US, the UK has actually done pretty respectively over this period. Now, GDP per head, I mean, if you look at absolute growth, then the US would do much better. But that's partly because the US has a much higher birth rate. So 
because the absolute size of its economy is getting a lot bigger compared to, say, Germany or the UK. Um, but, you know, GDP per head controls for the, that size of population and is, is a pretty good measure to look at. Now, what underlies this? Well, you can get greater income per person in broadly two ways. One is um, by increasing productivity, which is the focus of my talk. The other way, of course, is by trying to um, get more people into work. Um, and that, you know, both of those have been important. So there's been some improvements in the employment rate um, over this time, which has contributed to Britain's better performance. But of course, you know, um, you know and that, that's very important. Um, but in the kind of long run, the key thing behind having sustained growth is going to be productivity. So how much, given how many inputs we have, how, how, how many hours people are working, how much uh, investment we have, can we get more out of that in terms of higher productivity? So here's the productivity position. So this is kind of GDP per hour works. And this is kind of, you know, I think Paul Krugman said, you know, in the long run, uh, productivity growth is... Um, is, uh, is, 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 not, is not the only thing which matters, but it's almost the only thing which matters for economists. And that's because in the long run, um, productivity growth is really going to determine the wages people have and the consumption that we, that we can have. So if you look at Britain's position in terms of uh, GDP per hour, you can see it's, uh, and this is in the levels, remember, not in, not in the growth rates, but in the levels, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of not too bad, but not too good. But if you compare us to, say, Germany or France, we have lower productivity. Compared to the US, something like 13% lower productivity. So pretty similar to other European Union countries. So what is 13% productivity? Well, you know, broadly, broadly speaking, it means that you know, you could, we could all take uh, Friday afternoon off, go down to the pub and earn the same amount of money as we currently have. So if we could increase our productivity, increase our national pie by that much, we could actually you know, enjoy, enjoy the fruits of that leisure uh, by taking time off or by spending more money on beer or whatever you want to spend your money on. But clearly it would be a, be a big prize if we could manage to increase or bridge that productivity gap. So we have that gap and we want to try and do something to bridge that. Um, and that's the kind of key thing, I think, about growth. Um, it's worth bearing in mind that there have been some improvements. So going back to the graph of overall GDP per person, now looking particularly at uh, productivity, uh, I'm looking over a longer period of time, so I'm going to use uh, GDP per worker now. If you thought about the UK as 100 as the, as the base category, then we can look at how we do compare to other countries. So um, in 1997, uh, this is how we compared with France, Germany, and the United States. Those lines are all above 100, so these countries are all more productive than we were in terms of uh, GDP per, 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 per worker. Um, so, say with, the, with Germany, we were about 4% less productive than the, than the Germans, but by 2007, we actually were more productive than Germany was in terms of GDP per, per worker. So that, that's an improvement up to becoming 7% more productive than Germany between 1997 uh, and 2007. Compare that to France, we had about a 13% deficit with France, we bridged about 3% of the gap. Um, compared to the US, we haven't changed so much. So you know, we haven't bridged much of that gap with the US. But it's worth bearing in mind that this was a period of time when the US had the so-called productivity miracle. This was when the US economy kind of turned around and almost doubled its rate of productivity growth. So just to manage to keep up with the US over this period was, was, was in some sense quite an achievement for the, for the UK economy. Um, and you might say, has everything fallen apart over the, over the subsequent couple of years? Well, not really. I mean, you know, the picture in 2009 looks reasonably similar to what it did in 2007. I mean, uh, the U.S. has increased its productivity position a bit, but that's mainly because the U.S. has been very aggressive in laying workers off 
and the unemployment rate has increased quite significantly. So I don't think that's any, anything particularly an achievement of the U.S. In fact, if anything, that's more of a problem of the U.S. Um, so, you know, over this period between the mid-90s and, and, uh, and the current period, there has been, I think, some productivity improvements in the U.K. economy. Um, you know, if we went further back in time, back to 1979, to, then you can see that um, the improvements against um, the U.S., there was a bit of improvement between 1979 and 1987. Against France, there was actually a deterioration. So um, it's not like this is simply a, a continuation of a long-run trend. There does appear to be some, some improvement. Why did that improvement take place? Um, you know, I don't think economists know the full reasons, but I, I speculate there's a couple of things which are important. So one is human capital. You know, I see many of students in the room, and you know, one of the things which um, the British economy was successful at doing was actually increasing the proportion of people who had college degrees over this period. So from 1997 to uh, 2010, we had something like a 12 percentage point increase of uh, the uh, proportion of workers who had college degrees, some like 15%, some like 27%. So of course, when you get more skilled people into the labor force, this increases, increases productivity. That's you know, a critical thing about increasing productivity. Uh, other things are important as well. I mean, I think another, another factor underlying here is increases of competition, which I'm going to talk about, and also um, some issues of innovation as well, which I'll mention in a second. Okay, so nevertheless, there's been some improvement, there still remains this productivity gap. So what, what, is, what lies beneath this productivity gap? What are, what are the two factors? Well, the first factor, I think, is, is, uh, is the one you know, often being talked about, which is due to innovation and technology. And I think that you know, technological innovation is clearly one of the causes of our productivity gap in the United States. So the UK does have an innovation deficit. And the story is that you know, we are actually, in, in this country, very strong in basic science or in, 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 in elite university. So, for example, that 14% of all the top scientific papers in the world come from the UK with 1% of the population. So we're second only to the US in that, that regard. <coughs> Nevertheless, commercializing those innovations, getting those new inventions, those new ideas into products and processes which make money uh, is something which we're much weaker on. So if you look at our performance on patenting or in research and development, we're actually not so good, or indeed in productivity, as I've shown you, we're not so good in trying to commercialize those, those innovations. So I'm going to show you some numbers for research and development. That's not the only element of innovation, and Jonathan's going to talk in more detail about this. But I think it's a useful indicator. It gives you, it gives you one measure of uh, how we're doing in terms of innovation. And what you can do, if you look at how much of our GDP uh, Britain gives to or spends on research and development, and I plotted you know, those lines. You can see one thing: you know, the UK looks relatively low compared to other countries. And I put this between for three years, 87, 97, and 2007. You can see that um, in the 80s and uh, and the early 90s, there was this kind of fall off in uh, our R&D intensity when most other countries were increasing the R&D intensity. And for about the mid-2000s, that stabilized and reversed to, uh, uh, to some degree, which helped you know, stop that long-run long decline. In fact, the decline started in the late 70s. So for about the mid-2000s, there has been some improvements, or at least an arrestment of the R&D decline. Nevertheless, you know, we are, we're still not um, doing as well as, as I think we, we probably could do in terms of how much we're investing in, in, in research and development. And uh, the, Viagra, the, uh, the Pfizer thing was a particular shock because you know, that was clearly you know, an R&D lab which has um, you know, been, been closed down. 
Okay, so that's, that's one aspect of innovation, and there's, there's an issue around it, how, how we get more innovation. The second issue is around management practices, and this is, this is much less known, so I'm going, to, I'm going to talk about that a little bit more. So, um, you know, I, I really think that although there is some problem with kind of what you might call hard technologies, a bigger problem, in, or as big a problem, is the way that firms are managed. So many technologies are available globally. So why is it that some firms in some countries appear to be able to use these technologies and get much more productivity out of them than other, other countries and other firms do? I mean, information technology is, is a good example of this. So you know, all countries at some level have access to computers or information communication technologies, but some firms and some countries appear to get much more productivity out of it than, than others, others do. And people have looked at the U.S. performance versus other countries have suggested that, you know, there is this interesting thing about why do Americans seem to you know, use IT more, more effectively. So we think one of the reasons might that might well be to do with management. And in, uh, in work which I've been doing with um, colleagues in Stanford, Nick Bloom and Raphael Southern at Harvard, we've actually been trying really hard to, to really get at the question, how do you possibly measure, quantify and compare management across firms and countries? It's a very, very challenging task, but we've uh, taken it on. Uh, and the way that we've tried to take it on is develop a new kind of methodology. So we first of all start off with a, whole, with a bunch of different questions about management practices which we think are associated with better productivity. And I, I, you know, I'll show you some examples, but most of these are pretty common sense kind of things. So it's a question about you know, how you monitor what goes on within your firm. You know, are you trying to continuously improve it? Um, are you trying to introduce new type of techniques? Targets, do you have sensible targets? Or you know, are your targets like impossible to ever reach? Or are they so easy everybody reaches them? Are they you know, a mixture of financial and non-financial? And issues with people management, so human resources hiring and firing, paying people, promoting people. So I'll give you some examples of that. But before I do, let me just say how we do this. So we, we implement this by, um, as I said, the radical idea of talking to people. So we, uh, we call up, um, we started off with manufacturing plant managers uh, from uh, 20 countries all over the world and actually interviewing them. We've now done this in the retail sector and the hospital sector and schools and a number of other places. We started with manufacturing because it's pretty easy to measure productivity. So that's what we, we kind of did. Uh, and we developed these questions not out of thin air, but from talking to many consultancies and many industrialists about the kind of basic things they thought were important for raising productivity. So we have this kind of scorecard, which we're going to score people against. The next thing is how on earth do you get people to uh, you know, tell you the truth? Well, we have this thing called the double-blind method. And uh, the way we do this is the people doing the interviews um, don't know anything about the company's performance. They just have the name and the telephone number of the company. Um, these are companies typically of about you know, 200 employees, not companies you ever heard of. Um, so that's in order to stop you, you know, being biased. If you know you're interviewing a really good company, you might give it a high, a high score. The other way we keep it blind is that the managers who are being interviewed don't know, don't know they're being scored. So they think they're having a friendly conversation with an MBA student who's just you know, talking about the summer project. In the background, these guys have spent two weeks being trained up at um, you know, McKinsey and LSE to try and actually know how to interpret some of the answers. And the reason that we, we don't tell the managers that they're being scored is because of the well-known psychological bias that if you know you're being scored, you want to give the answers that you know, 
that you think the person wants you to, wants you to hear. So, for example, there's a lot of psychological evidence that, of that happening. You know, there was a, a nice uh, experiment um, where uh, people were sent off and asked whether they were going to vote for a right-wing party or a left-wing party. In the US, this was Republicans or Democrats. And they dressed up the interviewers who said exactly the same thing with the same people. One set were dressed up in you know, conservative business suits like this, and the other set were dressed up very scruffily, um, you know, with a kind of denim jacket and long hair. And of course, the altars came back. The, the people who, inter who were interviewed by the guys in the suits, they were, the Republicans had a big majority, and the people who, when the people were interviewed by the same guy but dressed scruffily, the Democrats had a big majority. And again, the answer is very natural. People give you the answer they think you want to hear. So to avoid that, we, uh, we didn't inform them in advance. Uh, we got this through the Human Subjects Committee, the Ethics Committee, because it's necessary deception to get accurate answers. So, you know, that was a struggle, but it got through, and I think it's kind of important. And finally, how do you get firms to participate in these interviews? Well, you know, we got official endorsement from many uh, reputable institutions in each country, such as the Bundesbank, the Treasury, uh, the Federal Reserve. Uh, we found different things work in different countries. So uh, in, the, in Germany, uh, no insult to any Germans in the audience, but the German, Germans are by nature quite a respectful of authority. So when they got the Bundesbank faxed through with the eagle crest of the Bundesbank, the German managers would immediately get on the phone or the email and be very happy to participate in the interview. So that was, that was great. Whereas in America, if you mention your, you know, you've, been, you've, been, uh, you've got a letter from the government, you hear the words communist and liberal and the phone gets slammed down and nobody speaks to you. So we found for the Americans, they responded a lot better to the idea of it's an MBA guy doing a summer project. So, um, we have, uh, you know, so we had a team of about 75 MBAs who have done this. Uh, those of you like Jonathan who have taught MBAs will know an advantage of uh, getting MBAs to do these interviews is that they tend to be loud and assertive and we select them for a business experience. They didn't like to take no for an answer. So we got a, we got a pretty good response rate for you know, about 45% for a voluntary survey and the responses were you know, unbiased in the sense that we could compare the, the, third, the responders, non-responders and the, the responders were no more productive or profitable than the non-responders. So it was, I think it was a pretty good uh, survey in that respect. Okay, here's an example of a question. So, you know, one, you know, one set of questions uh, is around, say, promotion. So, the way we scored people would be, say, we're thinking, we'd ask them an open question, like, you know, if you had somebody and you were thinking about promoting them, what kind of things would you, would you do? And based on the answers to that and the probes that we, we'd give them, we'd try and score them in different categories. So, a bad score would be if you promoted people purely on the basis of tenure or family connections, so nothing to do with effort or ability or their performance. Whereas a high score would be the firms who actually try to identify, develop, and promote their top performers. So, you know, essentially taking in their effort and ability into account when they're making the decisions. So the way you get at this is you know, not by just saying, you know, do you actively identify or develop your performance? You actually say, well, just talk me through what, you know, what you would do for your promotion procedures. As people talk, you can use that in order to classify what they're doing. We've also done in some of our works actually send people out into the firm's to interview workers, interview other parts of, of the other managers to corroborate this, and it, it seems to work pretty well. So we have this for, you know, same type of things for payment systems, for hiring, and another question is, you know, what do you do with people underperforming, and so on. And the set of these, these 18 different questions, are all up on the website if you want to look at them, go into our kind of composite measure of good or, good or bad management. So if you put that management measure together, the kind of interesting thing is if you correlate that with lots of things of firm performance, these are really highly correlated with things like productivity. So this correlates this average management practice score across all 18 questions. So one is a really bad score, and one is you know, the firms who are you know, 
you know, promoting people based on, you know, on whether the family connected or ignoring any underperformers or not monitoring what's going on. The fives are the ones who are really good. Um, you can see that if you correlate that with productivity, there's a pretty strong correlation. That correlation is there in every country we've looked at. It's not just the kind of Anglo-Saxon type of countries. You see that equally in China and Japan and Southern Europe, in Germany or France. So now this is not a causal relationship. This is just saying that these measures that we, we've, we've come up with have information in them. If they were just complete garbage, you wouldn't expect them to be correlated with, with measures of performance like they are. So if we take our management measures, we can actually then look at some differences across countries. So here's, here's a kind of uh, average score across different countries of our management measure. And you can see you know, the, the ranking of these countries looks similar to what you'd find for the ranking of productivities I showed you earlier. So the US does very well. There's a kind of premier league of countries like kind of Germany, Sweden, and Japan. And then the UK is kind of in the middle of the pack. It's not in the premier league by any stretch of the imagination, but it's kind of in the middle of the pack for, you know, similar to kind of Australia uh, and Italy and so on. And then at the bottom of the, uh, of the pile are many developing countries like India, Brazil and China. Greece did particularly badly. So when we did this, most of the states from 2006, Greece did particularly badly. We, what we thought, well, we must have done something wrong here because you know, Greece is a European Union country. Surely it can't be that bad. And then last year when people were throwing petrol bombs on the streets of Athens, we realized that in fact, you know, maybe we were actually picking up something about what was happening in, in, uh, in, in the Greek economy and society. In fact, I wish I'd at that point shorted uh, the sovereign debt of Greece. I would be, you know, not standing here now, but very rich had, had, I, had I taken my research more seriously. Okay, but much more interesting than what's going on between countries to me is what's happening within countries. So because we have this firm level data, we can plot this for every single country. This is every single data point in our data set. And it, what it's doing is it's plotting out the proportion of firms in each of the different bins. So you know, the ones are the really bad ones, the fives are the really good ones. Most firms are in, in between, you know, threes and fours on average. So you can see across every country there's massive variation. So it's not like you know, every firm in the US is fantastic and every firm in India is terrible. There's just huge variation in every country. There are great and really bad companies in every country. The, the thing which kind of sticks out is that um, the US that one of the reasons that the US seems to get a high score is that it actually has very few really, really badly managed firms. So one of the reasons that the US scores so highly is not necessarily has loads of firms up here, but it, the economy seems to be much more uh, efficient at weeding out the badly managed firms. So, and if you compared the US to the UK, then you can see this very clearly that you know, in the UK we, we have you know, a much thicker tail, if you like, of these very bad, you know, you know, much more really badly managed firms. And you know, that immediately makes you think that you know, one of the reasons for these differences is to do with competition. The competition is in this Darwinian sense rooting out the, the, weaker, the weaker firms. Um, it's also uh, another, another good thing about talking to people is you actually learn a lot about uh, cultural differences. So you know, these are, there's, there's quite a few quotes you can see on the website from managers we talk to. So this, is, uh, this is one of my favorite ones from. Uh, one of the plant managers that we spoke to was a British guy speaking to a, an Australian interviewer who said that, your accent is really cute, I love the way you talk, do you fancy meeting up near the factory? I mean, uh, what girl could resist uh, meeting behind the factory? But uh, this girl did, apparently. Sorry, but you know, she was washing her hair every night for the next month. Um, now, uh, things are, of course, different in India. Uh, so, uh, in India, uh, we, the, one of the fem again, a female interviewer had a similar type of issue. So uh, the production manager said, "Are you a Brahmin?" Now, so Brahmin is like a kind of high caste uh, 
high caste in the interview, yeah, she sighed at this point because she's off. Why do you ask? And the professional man said, Are you married? The interview, no. Excellent, excellent. My son is looking for a bride. I think you could be perfect. I must contact your parents to discuss this. So that was the end of the interview at that point. Uh, so cults, cultures definitely uh, are, are different. Okay, so we have this data. We think it has some information. But the question is, you know, what causes these differences in the management practice? So I've said one is competition. And that turns out to be really important. Competition matters for two reasons. One, as I mentioned, it selects out the really bad, badly run firms, the more likely to accept. The other is that even for the surviving firms, it seems to have an effect on forcing them or incentivizing those managers of those firms to try harder, perhaps in order to survive. So we find that competition matters both through the selection effect and also through this kind of effort effect. And you can show this in a few ways, but the easiest way to show, that, to show this is just to correlate. We ask the managers a simple question. We've done this in many ways. We ask them a question. Now, how many competitors do you think you face? And this plots out the reports number of competitors correlated against the average management score. And you can see very clearly that the firms which actually face more competitors or more competition appear to be much better managed. So, that, you know, there appears to be a very strong competition effect. So that's kind of unsurprising. We kind of expect that, but it's nice to see in the data. The second thing is that uh, this is the other thing which turned out to be really important, and we weren't expecting this. So if you think about what hurts good management, it turns out the best way to ruin a, a company is to give it to your eldest son. I mean, and apologies to anybody in family firms in the audience, but uh, giving your fa you know, it, the, the family-run firms, so the firms which are owned by a family and are run by the eldest son or the eldest grandson of the founder, tended to be very, very badly run. And, uh, you know, there's several reasons you might think that. I mean, ownership by itself may not be such a bad thing because, you know, if, you, if the family owned it, you might think that, you know, that actually helps with better monitoring of what goes on. But, you know, management, also putting your uh, family in charge, you might think has lots of problems. First of all, of all the people in the world who could run your company, uh, why might you think it's your, your, uh, your, your son or your, you know, your member of your family? I mean, you're actually restricting the pool of possible people that you could put there. I mean, I always draw the analogy, you know, as bad as the English soccer team is, imagine that our selection rule was it would be the eldest grandsons of the people who won the 1965 World Cup. That would not be the ideal way to select the English soccer team. It would be even worse than it currently is, uh, if, uh, if you can believe that. Um, the other, I mean, the other thing, the other, the other things that uh, may have an effect. If you know you're going to inherit the, the firm, you may work less hard at school. That's the you know, William, that's the Carnegie effect. And of course, if if, um, if you're working in a firm and you you know you're not a member of the family, you think, well, even if you're really good, I'm never going to make it to the top position because it's always going to be owned by the family. So. You know, if you look in the data, you actually see something quite similar to that. So this just plots out the average uh, management score by different types of ownership. Um, and this is the kind of family-owned, uh, family CEO. And you can see the kind of the, the average scores there are one of the lowest in the table. The only one low, the, the government-run, the lowest-run firms, they're the worst-managed firms. But the uh, family-run the family firms are also pretty bad. And it's interesting comparing that if you have a family-owned firm but get an external CEO in, that's actually pretty, pretty well managed. And in fact, if you compare, say, Britain with Germany, although um, both countries have lots of kind of you know, family-owned firms amongst these middle-sized firms, the German model is typically to get an external manager in to run the firm, whereas the British model is much more to get the eldest son in to run the company. And you know, that, I think, is one of the re that turns out to be important. So if you actually um, do a comparison of these, the, man the management gap, then between the US and the UK, three factors turn out to really explain that. One is competition, the second is the CEO selection, and the third is human capital. The other factor is actually 
Uh, as you'd imagine, stronger human capital is very important for improving management practices, not just the managers, but also the workers. You know, you can actually, if you have, you have well-trained workers, you can actually get much better quality uh, productivity from them. Okay, so that uh, is kind of interesting, but then you might say, well, you know, so what? You know, we don't really care about the management aspect. What we care about is whether management improves performance. Does it really improve productivity? It's correlated with productivity, but you know, there could be many other things causing that correlation. So in, really, in order to really get at this kind of question of causality, does management cause higher productivity, we actually uh, ran, have run a few experiments on plants in, uh, in India, outside Mumbai. So this is a kind of randomized control trial where we, some plants get a lot of uh, heavy management consulting. We have some control plants who get very light consulting, just enough to get the data. And then we collect data for the next two years, comparing treatments and control. So we found that when we did this, you actually get really uh, big improvements in management practices. Something, you know, something like $200,000 a year improvements for the intervention. So, um, so investments which would pay back. Um, and just to give you an idea about before and after, so these are some of the uh, before pictures of what these factories look like. Um, when Nick took the top left one, you can see the toxic chemicals are spilling out. You can scared to get too close to the, uh, the barrels here to photograph them. So many of the factories were disorganized, dirty and unsafe, and one of the things that the intervention did was to try and just kind of organize them better. So there was a thing called the 5S initiative. Very simple things like snag tagging where problems took place so they actually can get systematically fixed. Uh, sorting out the organization of machines on the factory floor, having kind of regular meetings with the workers and managers to try and fix problems. So kind of very, a lot of very basic management practice interventions. And if you compared the kind of control firms at the top and the treatment firms, this is a measure of quality defects before and after the intervention. The guys who in the treatment, the black line, had very, very big improvements uh, in terms of reduced, uh, in improved quality and much less quality defects. So something like a 50% fewer defects than before the intervention. So this really does suggest you know, a strong causal effect of, of the intervention on productivity. Okay, so let's move on to, um, to policy. So let's first of all talk about uh, short-run policies in terms of uh, the current debate over austerity. So. You know, there's kind of three broad you know, views of growth that you could think of. One is uh, the kind of uh, you know, more traditional right-wing view, which is the kind of shrink state and let markets flourish, uh, which, you know, you think of this as Thatcherism or maybe Osbornism, perhaps, or maybe unfairly. Um, and, you know, the basic idea is that you know, if you can shrink the state, then you, you, know, you can actually relieve that constraint and improve, improve performance and productivity. Now, you know, of course, that has to be countered because, you know, markets do need some intervention, competition policy at least. The traditional left-wing view has been, well, what we need is a growth plan, a kind of top-down plan. You know, the typical you know, problems in the NHS can be solved by lots of targets, which clearly work very badly. Or the more kind of, you know, maybe basic Keynesian approach, which is what we need is just an untargeted expansion of demands um, in order to get ourselves out of, uh, you know, a recessionary, recessionary position. So I'm going to argue, actually, for an alternative, which is, you could think of this as a potential enabling state, where part of what we have to do is deal with market failures, innovation, climate change, and so on. But also, it's possible, maybe, to stimulate, when you're thinking about stimulation programs, then um, do this through targeted investment, not just general increases of demand, but targeted at the long-run things that we might think are important, like innovation, human capital, and infrastructure spending. So just to remind you where we are, so um, this was the, um, this was the uh, uh, policy under uh, Alistair Darling and the last Labour government. So it's worth bearing in mind that the, uh, the March 2010 budget was a pretty tough budget. 
The plan was by 2016 to 17 to uh, essentially consolidate the budget by 5% of GDP, so that was 72 billion pounds. So that, you know, that was the that was the plan uh, prior to the coalition being elected. Um, pretty a pretty tough austerity program. But after the election of the coalition, the June emergency budget uh, decided to actually accelerate that process and also um, make it uh, make it tougher. So the plan brought forward the budget consolidation to 2015-16, uh, moved it up to 7% of GDP, which is 110 billion billion pounds. And you can see that you know this is also front-loaded compared to the previous plan. So a lot more of the pain is borne earlier on in uh, this year, of course. Uh, April, April this year, relative to the, the previous budget. So this is, um, you know, it's, it's easy to look at these figures and forget, but this is actually the, uh, the toughest uh, consolidation program since the Second World War. So very, a very tough period of time, which we are heading into um, this year and, and going forward. Um, why did uh, the government decide to do this? Well, the, the reason, uh, in some sense, is obvious, you might say, because look at government borrowing over GDP. Um, the reduction is actually going to be the third highest in the OECD that we're facing. But, of course, the level in 2010 of government borrowing was also third highest in the world. I mean, the US and Ireland had a bigger um, government borrowing to D uh, GDP ratio. So if you looked at the position, what happened between 2007 and 2009, government spending uh, rose from 41% to 48%, so a huge increase of spending, you might say. Receipts uh, fell, but only by about one percentage point, so the deficit rose from about 2.4% of GDP to 10.4% of GDP. So you know, something had to be done. Um, and you might say, well, isn't, doesn't this just show that spending was completely out of control and this was what was needed to be done? Now, of course, you know, spending was, was too high in 2007. And for that stage of the cycle, I think it's, it's, it's correct to say that there should have been a lower degree of, of spending or a higher degree of, of, of taxation. But the reason that spending exploded as a portion of GDP wasn't because spending went up by so much, it's because GDP fell by so much. So as I showed you in the first graph, the collapse of GDP is what fundamentally caused the uh, spending to, over to GDP ratio to rise. You know, if you decided to, well, what we're going to do is to keep, the, keep, keep to 41% by massive cutbacks of spending in the middle of the recession or increase of taxation, this would be, you know, extremely unwise and would have, you know, plunged us into a much deeper recession. So you know, fundamentally, it's not so much spending out of control, it's the fall of, fall of GDP. Now, the austerity program has chosen to have about a 40% uh, government spending to GDP ratio. That's lower than has been the historical average since the 70s. That's a one, you know, clearly a choice. An alternative would be to have a higher level of taxation, so it's not inevitable. The underlying assumption behind it is that there has been, as a result of the recession, a large and permanent fall of GDP. And in, in some sense, this underlies a lot of the consensus we often hear that we needed to uh, have this accelerated program because the supply side of the economy has shrunk compared to what we thought it was, our potential output has shrunk. So therefore, we need to actually, uh, in order to adjust to that, you know, we can't have high demand because that would just stoke up uh, wage inflation. So therefore, we actually need to have a, a tougher consolidation program, and we haven't got much room for any uh, any relaxation of that demand. Now, you know, I actually think, although people have said that we could have a 10% fall of our potential output, 2%, we really don't know. I mean, there's undoubtedly some part of the of the boom 
and the financial crisis which has led to a fall of our potential output. But the estimates which put it as high as 75 or 10%, I think, are, are both unknown and, 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 and probably overly pessimistic. I think it ignores some of the productivity improvements that I actually showed you earlier on. And in my personal view is, in fact, the, the economy is in a, in a, you know, the, the degree of potential output is not as bad as many people have been, have been assuming. And, of course, if you think about the cost side, there are very serious costs of front-loading the cut. So it clearly um, risks the recovery, given the, the state of recovery. And also, um, and this is something in Chris Pissaridi's Nobel Prize winner has, has, has talked about here at LSE a lot, it also risks scrapping a lot of human and fixed capital. So an obvious example of this is long-term unemployment. So rapid um, spending cuts lead to much higher unemployment than, than you would otherwise expect. And in particular, long-term unemployment. And long-term unemployment is a particular problem because um, it actually means that the people who become long-term unemployed lose many of their skills, lose many of their capacities. And this is a, almost a permanent loss to the economy. So in this sense, a kind of very pessimistic view of UK capacity becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So because we think our capacity has dropped so much, we introduce a very harsh austerity program, creating longer-term unemployment and scrapping our human capital and physical capital. And this actually means we do end up with a much reduced supply side. So I think that um, the risk is, by, by you know, undue pessimism about the potential supply side, we actually end up in a self-fulfilling prophecy. And that, that's one of my biggest fears at the moment. Okay, on the other side of the coding, you can say, what about the benefits? Have, have the UK not a completely unsustainable debt? Now, it, you know, everybody agrees that we needed some, some, some degree of, of austerity, and as I showed you, that was true under the, uh, under the previous budget. But I think that the degree of crisis can often be exaggerated. So if you look at our uh, debt-to-GDP ratio, and it was high, it, is, it was high, and it is high, 79% currently. But if you look at over the last 300 years, that's averaged 118%. So, significant, so in fact, it's not so completely out of line as the average over the last 300 years. And you know, my sense is that the, you, know, you can exaggerate the problem. Uh, we've been in, in worse positions than we have now. Our debt has long maturity, which means we don't need to keep refinancing it. Britain's never, never formally defaulted on its debt. So the idea that Britain is going rapidly the way of Greece, I think, is, 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 just, uh, is just false. Um, the other, I mean, the stronger argument is that we needed to have an austerity program in order to uh, establish credibility and confidence, um, to give assurance to bond markets that you know, UK PLC was, was still in business. Um, it's, this is really a much harder argument to decide because this is much more about the psychology of markets and how markets are going to react. Um, you know, my, my view on this is that um, the fundamentals, as I've said, I think, that Britain wasn't in crisis, there was a, a debt reduction plan and a deficit reduction plan. And I think the, the risk that we're currently in is because we have formally committed ourselves to such a budget austerity plan, we may actually find it's, we, we can't deliver that. We, we know, in order to avoid uh, an even worse outcome, we'll have to then rein back on that plan and then fail to live that plan. And the markets are much more likely to punish that than it would have been the case had we had a more sensible deficit reduction plan in the first place. I mean, it puts us in a very difficult position now, of course, but I think that, you know, in retrospect, I think having a more sensible deficit reduction, even now I think there's room for some, some improvements for, for Plan B with investment. 
And of course, the other benefits of accelerated authority is voters' memory is short. So we get the pain out of the way very quickly in the electoral cycle, and then when, boom, when the uh, recovery comes later on, people will forget how bad it was earlier on. So in some sense, politically, it's an attractive plan, even if it is an attractive plan economically. So I do think we need a plan B. Uh, the Chancellor's argued against this. Um, the argument is, well, if we run into problems, monetary policy will come to the rescue. We can lower interest rates or, or, or do some other monetary intervention. You know, again, I mean, given that interest rates are so low and we have concerns about inflation, I, I don't really see that. I, I see that as a, you know, in normal times, I would say, yes, this is, this, this, this is a reasonable position to take. But I think we're not in normal times at the moment. We've actually been through the, one of the worst financial crises in, uh, in living memory. And I think that um, in that case, uh, fiscal policy is, is called for. Um, you know, and the idea that, well, if we're really in trouble, we can always slow down. We know fine-tuning is difficult. Given our rhetoric, we have this worry of extreme loss of credibility. So I think moving towards a more sensible plan now, plan B, and having that in, as, a, as, a, as our backup plan would be a very sensible thing to do. However, um, we need more than plan B. We need a plan V. So what is the V plan, the plan for growth? Um, there's three things that we need. The first of all is we have to think about getting external conditions right. So we admit, first of all, we don't know exactly where new growth is going to come from. Getting the conditions right so we can actually generate more new ideas. And then we get, when we get those ideas, we can actually uh, allow companies to grow is, is the, probably the key thing. But in addition to that, um, we also need to think about areas of growth, sectors which are going to grow. And I think, you know, we, we, I'm going to give you some examples of that, but you know, universities, healthcare, business services, green technology, and so on, are clearly areas of growth. And we have to then map that against where we think the UK has some comparative advantage. So um, you know, don't try and strike out in areas where we think we're hopeless, but look where we have some strengths and match up those growth areas with the areas where the UK has some advantages. And you know, there are many areas, market services, academic science like biopharmaceuticals, and creative sectors. So what are the kind of conditions that we might need for growth? So as I mentioned in the management, in the management story, product market competition is incredibly important. So I think uh, having a strong, credible competition policy, trade policies, uh, I, the planning regime that we are, the planning regime often holds back growth, say outside Cambridge, it's very hard to grow to you know, a high-tech firm because it's very hard to get a planning commission. Uh, the current plans to decentralize that will actually potentially make that worse. So we have to really think about the trade-off between having uh, more relaxed planning and greater competition, which I, I would support, versus other things about decentralization. I also think there's a big win here in terms of the public sector. There's lots of opportunities to actually increase competition in the public sector to actually increase, increase performance. The second thing is on taxation. So um, another you know, a key condition of taxation, less the level of taxation, but more about the structure of taxation, making it simple, making it, uh, making it uh, less distortionary. An example of that is we, in this country we have a 100% inheritance tax exemption for family businesses. Uh, so that actually encourages, you know, Germany doesn't have that in the US, that encourages family firms, which, uh, as I've shown you, is, is a drag on our, on our management productivity, um, and also uh, you know, not good for intergenerational equality. And finally, if we got rid of that, we could raise some money. So it seems to me there's a triple win potentially there. And this example of a policy removes a distortion and could actually create stability and simplicity in the tax system, which is very much in line with the kind of Murley's review. In terms of uh, another condition, it's human capital. The UK uh, has made improvements at the higher end, but it's weak at the lower end of the distribution. We have too many people with very low skills. So you know, in terms of improving that, 
Uh, it's not just about getting people to universities, it's also about getting people um, to take apprenticeships to improve their skills in, in that level as well, and also make reforms to the schooling system that Steve Maitland has talked a lot about in terms of uh, doing something about this lower end of the skill distribution. Okay, um, I know I have time to talk about financial markets. Let me talk a little bit about innovation policy and a bit about universities and then end. So here's an example, I think, of a, a good example where we could think about this Plan V. So universities are actually a really good example of uh, a potential growth industry. We think about universities traditionally as uh, you know, either creating new research or training people to, uh, you know, to, have, to have degrees. But it's also a, a fantastic uh, uh, export industry. So, um, you know, overseas students, as many of you are here, have grown massively over time, so from about half a million to 3.3 million today. The growth market is estimated something like 7% a year globally by McKinsey. Uh, the UK is actually second only to the US in this market in terms of our overseas students. Um, and there's an opportunity. The US actually lost market share after 2000, particularly after September the 11th when the visa regime was tightened up. So its share was lost, similar with Australia, due, again due to immigration policy. So the UK has this excellent uh, uh, you know, opportunity here. Um, and unfortunately, the current policies that we have are actually squandering many of those opportunities. So there are, you know, there are a huge reduction in the, uh, in the teaching subsidy. And also the um, immigration targets of 100,000 has also had potentially disastrous consequences. First of all, um, you know, for the types of visas for very highly skilled people, which top universities rely on, that's become extremely difficult to get. The number of so-called tier one visas has fallen from 14,000 last year to only 1,000 this year in the whole of the UK. So it makes it much harder to attract global talents. And similarly for students, um, there is a, a program which enables students uh, to work temporarily after they qualify from universities. That scheme, it looks like it, it may, be, may be removed. And this, of course, is one of the great offers that we give to students. Come and study at a great university and also stay on and work afterwards. So in terms of this global war for talents, uh, we're kind of shooting ourselves in the foot by having these kind of immigration targets. So I think um, a better set of policies would be to actually have uh, a much more liberal approach to immigration, especially for immigration of high school people, which benefits growth and also actually is going to uh, aid inequality, uh, reduce inequality, uh, rather than the current sort of anti-growth policy. So that's, that's clearly one example of a, a, growth, a growth industry. Um, another example of um, a policy, more general policy, is like an innovation policy. So think about research and development support. Um, it's, a, it's a very good example because um, ideas are very promiscuous. So, you know, Jonathan gets a great idea, he talks to everybody else, that helps the idea spread, and the ideas benefit everybody, probably more than poor Jonathan or poor, you know, or poor Steve or poor me. But of course, because firms know that, it means they tend to underinvest in, in ideas or underestimate innovation. So people have estimated, find the social return to research development is about twice as big as the private return. Um, and also in a country like Britain, research development helps catch up with the leaders as well as giving great, uh, giving great innovations. So, you know, at the moment, so a, a, an easy, you know, a, a good policy towards this is to have uh, proper subsidisation of research and developments. Um, at the moment, um, under Gordon Brown and under this government, there is a, a policy called the patent box which subsidises intellectual property. It's going to cost us a billion pounds a year and will do nothing for research and developments. It's going to just subsidise already created intellectual property. So an easy thing to do would be to remove that and actually use that to actually directly 
um, subsidise the R&D system, either through tax, tax credits or more directly through universities. So that would be a very easy win. Um, and I think something which would be very good for long-term growth. There's also ways that you can actually use maps of distance between different firms to try and figure out uh, where we have some strengths and where we have some weaknesses in technology and, and geography. Okay, so I think I'm almost out of time, so uh, I hope I've given you some ideas. Let's go back to our current growth position. Uh, as I said, uh-oh, it looks more like uh, going into a W than going into a V. So, uh, you know, what we want to get back is to uh, plan V. So uh, here's my suggestion to the very glum-looking Mr. Osborne here. If we could give him the plan V um, through uh, a substitute for some of our lost little blue pills, we could actually remove, improve our position away from uh, that very low growth to even higher growth to really a, a super V plan. So this is, this is what I think we, we need. So uh, you know, in conclusion, I think we have a lot of knowledge now about the source of political growth and management. Um, I've argued that the, in the short run, this extreme austerity is a political choice, not an economic necessity. I think we need to have austerity, but not the level we currently have. I think uh, management innovation can be improved via reforms, both the competition, the taxation for universities and R&D. We really need to start thinking about this plan B. And finally, you know, for the potential research in the audience, if I just uh, still one more minute, uh, you do learn a lot from talking to people. So, you know, you might say it's a very trivial thing about understanding ownership in Europe, but uh, one manager we spoke to said, we are owned by the Mafia. And uh, the interviewer said, nervously, I think that's in the other category, although I guess I could put you down as an Italian multinational. And I don't want you to go away thinking Americans are best at everything, so apologies to any uh, Americans in the audience, but the Americans score very high on management and uh, on productivity, they're a bit weak on geography. So we asked one guy, uh, you know, how many production sites do you have abroad, man in Indiana? Well, you know, we have one in Texas. Actually, Texas is a different country, people say. So, uh, you know, also staff rewards are quite different. So in America, you know, if an employee gets a slogan, he gets a TV or a company parking space. In the UK, things are, of course, different. So uh, how would you persuade the top performers to say sex is a great thing? The employee finds a new girlfriend somewhere else. I can't do anything. <laughs> different cultures, different things. Thank you very much. Okay, so, so the respondent, um, Jonathan Haskell from Imperial College. Uh, how do I get to the next? Uh, are, you, are you below? I know. Okay, well, uh, thank you very much for uh, inviting me. My name is uh, Jonathan Haskell. I'm from Imperial College. Uh, that was a very good talk, John. Of course, it's a very difficult talk to give without, you know, disturbing the sensibilities of people. Um, fortunately, I'm not Greek uh, and I'm not German. I am half American, though. Uh, and um, let me just put on the table straight away, um, my father owns a family business. Uh, and I'm the oldest son, so... Um, I was terribly offended by some bits of your talk, but no, no, it was a very nice talk. His name is not Mr. Imperial. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Now, um, there's a review in uh, uh, last week's paper of a debate between um, Will Hutton and Anatol Kaletsky, and it said these were, you know, two great minds talking. They said, um, but since they agreed with each other, it was a terribly boring debate. That's what the reviewer said. So, unfortunately, the bad news is that I actually agree with quite a lot of what John says. So, uh, what I'm going to try and do is I'm going to try and disagree uh, in order to be uh, a little bit uh, less boring. So let me start with my first uh, uh, type of disagreement. Um, John started with this sort of the people who motivated him uh, to actually do this study, and you saw uh, David Brent and Basil Fawlty. Uh, the people who motivate me actually to give this talk are, are these uh, Harry Potter, uh, first of all, uh, and then that, just to inject a bit of glamour into the proceedings, uh, we have Colin Firth. Uh, and his co-stars. So uh, those are the people uh, who I sort of think about when I'm thinking about growth for the reason that I'll just uh, talk about in a second. But firstly, on to a much less glamorous issue, which is the issue about austerity, which John talked about. Now, again, let me, uh, for the purposes of discussion, disagree, uh, John, with you, if I may. The first point to make, I think, is it's kind of important that the political parties don't actually differ all that much on this, I think. Uh, you know, Labour's March 2010 budget plans were to cut total spending by 2014 to 42% of GDP. Uh, the latest OBR uh, documents about the current government uh, suggest that it's going to be cut to around 40.4% of GDP. I mean, that is within sampling area of GDP. So there's really not that much difference in my opinion, between the two political parties. I think that's kind of important to say. The second issue, John, which you touched on in your talk was about the issue of credibility. Now, it just seems to me that this credibility, it's hard to pin down, but it's kind of important. I mean, even the most ardent Keynesian would argue that you want to spend in recessions, but, you know, you have to cut when times are, are, are good. Now, since we've, in Britain, done exactly the opposite, namely had lots of spending when times are good, it seems to me we do face this terrible credibility problem. And part of the reason why the cuts have to be so large is that is the cost of credibility. And it's a horrible, horrible cost to bear, but I, I think that's an element of it. So that's the second point I'd make. The third point I make is I think we got ourselves, and it's related to the credibility issue, into this terrible uh, quandary where, we, where we, had much, we had very excessive reliance on the tax take from financial services. So financial services, according to the IFS, were paying about 30% uh, of all um, uh, corporation tax payments. And once we get into that, then there is an unholy collusion between the government and between banks. That leads to the poor regulation, in my, my personal opinion, of banks and all the various difficulties we get. So we had to get out of that as well. Now, the last point I wanted to make, and just develop a little bit, if I may, in a couple of slides, is um, it's all very well talking about the level of spending, but I think it's important to figure out what we're actually spending it on. And here, as usual, the Institute for Fiscal Studies are right on the money. Uh, here's the latest Green Budget Report, and you can see the public-private wage differentials here. Uh, these are for men and women controlling for education and uh, age and so forth. Uh, and you can see that over in the, in the final period, up over here, uh, there was an acceleration uh, in public sector wage differentials. So these are for like people. Uh, public sector workers are really pulling ahead in terms of their wages. So that's one thing. Uh, the second thing the IFS has nailed down is the pensions that public sector workers are entitled to. Uh, and you can see that in the middle here, uh, the pension rights have actually gone up, and they're quite high. And in the private sector, the value of pensions has gone down, and they're much lower. So those are rather different as well. Now, you might say, oh, well, business, well maybe we're getting a lot uh, for this pay premium for 
its pensions premium. So let's just take a little look at public and private sector productivity. Uh, here's private sector productivity from some work that I've been doing, kindly sponsored by Nesta. Uh, the black line at the top tells you output. The purple line at the bottom tells you input. This is kind of an index of labor and capital inputs. And what you see in this is what you see in private sector productivity most of the time, namely that output goes ahead of input uh, as the private sector gets more efficient and does more clever things uh, with its particular inputs. Now, what's been happening in the public sector... Sorry, these lines are kind of faint. But basically, both of those lines of the public sector, both output and input, are going up. In fact, if anything, the input line goes up faster than the output line. Uh, and the best estimates of the ONS, and this is controlling for, for quality and all the various measurement difficulties they are, is that public sector uh, productivity has been falling by about half a percent per year since 1997. Now, these things are really, really, really hard to measure. Uh, and I'm quite prepared to believe uh, that these, are, these figures are not exactly right, but we are talking about uh, a public sector which I think is in badly in need of reform. And so I think we mustn't forget that when we're thinking about how much uh, more money to spend. Uh, let me pass then on to uh, growth policy. Uh, and as I said, there's much to agree with in the lecture. Uh, let me pick out a few bullet points uh, from an earlier version of the lecture that John uh, uh, sent me. I, I guess my major thing, if I had to say kind of one thing, is that the industry split... I believe is just mostly completely unhelpful. It's just not very helpful anymore to talk about manufacturing and services and high-value manufacturing and all that kind of thing. Uh, and let me go through just a couple of reasons why that might be the case. Uh, the first is, to slightly contradict myself, that there are some cases where it is kind of helpful. So, for example, planning policy, which I think John mentioned quickly in passing, particularly impacts on retailing. So this incredibly stupid planning policy we've got, which creates all manner of environmental difficulties and so forth, uh, is pretty bad for retailing productivity. So that's where it's quite helpful to focus on a particular industry who are particularly hurt uh, by a particular policies. But, as second bullet point says there, most industries have just been completely transformed. So I think the lines of industry are terribly fuzzy. So, for example, manufacturing industry is a heavy investor in all manners of old-fashioned tangible capital, machines and computers and tables and chairs and all that kind of thing. But it is an enormous investor in design and in software and in branding and all of those intangible things which are often seen as being the domain of the service sector. So the, it's a, just a fuzzy mix between manufacturing and services. I don't think that helps us. It feeds an, an unhealthy obsession with manufacturing, which I doesn't, don't, don't think make it, makes much sense, given these industries are doing different things. And I think it leads to entry barriers and capture. So um, th th that's, that's the first thing about the industry split. Uh, a few words on R&D and Pfizer and management and those kind of issues that John said. One is a narrow point. Um, my understanding of the Pfizer thing, which is obviously not good, is that the spend per drug is rising very sharply. And there has been some correspondence in the FT, about which I am no expert, pointing out that actually Pfizer's R&D uh, down there was not the most productive R&D by any means. In a way, they were in the tail of the R&D distribution. Uh, when I'm, uh, sorry, they're, they're in the tail of the productivity distribution. Their productivity of the R&D uh, was not as good as it might be in other places. So um, I think there's some issues uh, there. The more broader point is a point with which I agree, which is that innovation is not just in R&D. Uh, it's in a large range of intangible assets, one of which, of course, is management. And, and if we think about that, I think it helps us think about growth and innovation uh, and where we might go. Uh, so the view of growth I have is one founded on the notions of, the, of a broad category of intangible investments. Uh, here are some examples here um, of some uh, innovative products uh, which, which, which show this principle. So the iPhone has R&D and patents, as it were, inside it, but it's a miracle of software, design, 
marketing, branding, all those different things. Uh, EasyJet, very innovative company by anybody's uh, uh, measure, I think. Again, no R&D and no patents, but what are they incredibly good at? Software, branding, and like other low-cost airlines, are fantastically good at business processes, which is surely where the management issue comes in. Uh, likewise, in financial services, there's no R&D or patenting there, but they're doing a lot of product development, spending on a ton of software, branding, and training, and all those kind of things. Uh, and all of that leads me to, to, to say that we need to think much more, uh, um, um, not only creatively, but we need to think much more seriously about the creative sector, who both produce these intangibles uh, and uh, use some of these intangibles as well. Uh, so what kind of understanding do we, does that give us in terms of growth, which is kind of the question on the card tonight? Uh, growth is given, driven then by labor quality, by tangible capital equipment, particularly computers, and then by these intangible capital inputs as well. Uh, management is one of those, uh, but also there are these sort of broader issues as well. All right, so what do we know about the output and the use of these intangibles? Let me just show a couple of slides, Steve, if I may, and then I'll stop. Uh, and a case study, I think, uh, about how this stuff is important um, but is sort of beneath the radar is in movies. So this is why I wanted to talk about Harry Potter and Colin Firth. Uh, so here's the spending according to the official data on making movies. And so if you look at this, you see the graph kind of goes up and that kind of looks right. And, and, and you think, well, that's okay, you know, it's all being measured correctly and so forth. But if you look at the scale, you'll see that in 2009, let me read it out in case you can't read it, the spending here according to the official data is £40 million. Pounds. Okay? Now if you start to think about the movies that you know that are made here, let's go to the King's Speech. That cost £9 million. Pounds. Uh, Harry Potter cost about £100 million. Pounds. Uh, Sherlock Holmes, very successful movie, it was made here down in Greenwich and was shot up in Liverpool a little bit as well, that was another £80 million. Pounds. Yet somehow or other the official measures seem to be about £40 million. Pounds. And the reason for that turns out that the official measures of what is surely one of our most creative sectors and kind of headline sectors uh, turn out to be the spending by film four. So the King's speech which was passed up by Film 4, is not in the movie spending because it's off the statistical radar because Film 4 decided that it would be a dismal failure and they weren't going to fund it. Okay. So um, we, we need a better measure of that, and if you do a bit slightly better measure of that and you total up all the spend and correct for the fact that there are imports and exports and all that kind of thing, you get this pink number way up here around the 250, 300 million mark. So uh, spe the, the intangible sort of sector is kind of somewhat neglected by the statistical authorities, and that needs to be the case. I'm not going to plague you with too many more numbers. Tangible spend, according to our best estimates, again, this is work we've done, kindly sponsored by Nesta, is about 104 billion. Intangible spending is higher than that, 140 billion. Business processes, training, uh, all those kind of things, whoops, are very important. Uh, how did I manage to press that? I pressed the wrong button, I apologize. Um, uh, so uh, let, me, uh, let me then tell you a little bit about tangible and intangible spending on manufacturing and financial services. As I was saying before, manufacturing spending uh, on intangibles dwarfs that on tangibles as the red box. And intangibles is very important in financial services. So if we want to understand growth in financial services, we have to look at um, tangibles. Okay, last couple of slides, uh, Steve, and then I'll stop if I may. 
the way ahead. Uh, let's stop obsessing about industries and rebalancing. As I said before, what is a manufacturing firm? Uh, let's improve the measurement of intangibles. We can't make policy without some proper measures. As it says, some key areas of the economy, most notably the creative industries, are just very badly mismeasured. And as I mentioned before, if we want to understand financial services and these other industries, we need to know something about intangibles. What else do we need? Uh, various public sector reforms, which are well discussed, uh, including national wages and that crowding out effects. And then I would broadly put the, uh, some of these points here, which come back to some of John's points, a better understanding about what knowledge investment actually needs. So in the private sector, what does that need? It needs a competitive and a stable taxation regime. It needs a very stable regulation framework that doesn't appropriate sunk investments. Many intangible, uh, much intangible spending is, of course, sunk. It's very difficult to get it back. We need a regulation framework that uh, doesn't help that. Uh, we need to do something about the cost of capital. We have to get bank reform right. We can't have a situation where firms are hoarding enormous amounts of money and not investing because they're so worried about the future of the economy and what bank reform uh, and capital costs are going to be. Likewise, in the public sector, uh, complementary public sector investments in the science base and in universities seem to be an obvious place for the public sector to go. As John correctly pointed out, the patent box is the most appalling waste of money. Terrible idea. Uh, and uh, we should eat, well, there are many better things that we could spend it on. Uh, and lastly, the issue about immigration, which is an enormous issue for universities because it's going to hurt universities enormously. Um, we need the free movement of labour, bringing skills and ideas, and John mentioned that. Uh, and I, in a way, I think it takes us back to the size of the state. Uh, I'm just not sure, in the end, that politically, having a large state seems to be a, it does not seem to be a political equilibrium with having free immigration. So unfortunately, if that's the trade-off we need to make, uh, since, in my opinion, we want freer immigration, we might have to have a smaller state. Okay, so let me stop at that point. Thanks again for the opportunity to make some comments. Okay, thanks. So I'd like to give John a minute or two to respond to the respondent, um, and then we'll open up the floor to questions. Okay, so uh, thanks very much, Jonathan, for those. Uh, is my mic on? Okay, so thanks, thanks very much for those uh, those those comments. Um, you know, I, I, I'd be keen to hear from other people. I don't want to talk for too long, but just uh, on a couple of things. So, I mean, I think Jonathan, as as you've heard. His work is, is really some of the best work in the world looking at intangible investments and intangible capital. And clearly that's providing some of the work that we need to understand what's, what's going on in that part of the economy, which we, which we understand very poorly. Um, I, I, would, I would say that you know, the, the caveat to that is that one is that um, we, don't, you know, we know that it's, it's very hard to measure intangibles. I mean, R&D is hard enough intangibles in general. It actually, I think, is an extra step of complexity. I mean, you mentioned financial services as a good example of that. They appear to have very high intangible capital, but we know that much of that intangible capital appeared to be uh, rather illusory uh, at one level. And the other problem with the intangible capital thing, I think, is, I mean, this is just a question of more research, is that the key thing about, you know, policy towards intangibles is whether or not there's a market failure. So with, we have all the evidence that with the market for ideas, those ideas spill over and that creates a wedge between what's good for the, in, the individual firm, what's good for the society. It's not so clear with many of these intangibles that these are just not all you know, completely capped in you know, private goods. There's no obvious reason what the public policy intervention should be for many of these other intangibles. So in terms of thinking about policy, then I think it's uh, less clear um, at the moment, I mean, there might be research which establishes this, whether there's any reason for a kind of policy intervention to support uh, other types of intangibles. Um, 
on the on the public sector reform, I completely agree with that. Um, I mean, again, measurement is difficult, but you know, I, I do think there's many wins we could have for improving productivity in the public sector. Um, I mentioned the kind of competition aspects, which I which I think are very, are very important. Um, I think another another thing Jonathan touched on is uh, is pay as well. I think the problem actually in in the public sector is we have far too much flat pay. Um, pay is far too similar in very high cost areas, for example, like London and the South East compared to other areas of the country, which makes it extremely difficult to recruit and retain uh, um, high, you know, high quality people. Um, and that, you know, I, in some of my work I've shown that seems to be reflected in the higher death rates in, uh, in, many, in many places in London and the South East. Finally, on the, on the kind of austerity issue, um, I, I take the point, I think it's a good point, that the difference between the parties is obviously often exaggerated. And I think you know, that's very important because the idea that the alternative to the current set of policies is, is doing nothing is clearly the wrong counterfactual. The right counterfactual is, I think, you know, what the 2010 budget was broadly planning to say. And so I think in, in that sense, the difference is not as great as people say. However, it's still the case, I think, there are, there are differences. So you know, that um, two percentage points of GDP by, uh, by 2015 is, I is not, I think, you know, in, in the margins of error. And I think the front loading of it, so it's actually an extra one percentage point of GDP this year, is important, especially um, given the fragility of the recovery. So I, I think it's smaller than people often say, but I don't think it's at all negligible. Okay, good, thanks. Let's take some questions um, from the floor. Uh, I think we should uh, take a few uh, and accumulate them up and then get, uh, get uh, the, two, the two Johns to respond to them. Okay, so who'd, who'd like to ask a question? There's a, mic there's a microphone coming. We see your name as well. So. Uh, Matthew Seaton. I'd like to thank you for, your, for the speech first. Um, regarding the sampling of the managers across countries, did you control for the different, different distribution of types of firms across the countries? So I guess my point is going towards, in the States, are they better managers or do they have firms more conducive to better management? There's, there's one at the back. There's two at the back there, actually. Uh, thank you very much. My name is Richard. Um, I'm interested in how you measure levels of competition in respective economies. I think John Van Rena mentioned in one of the questionnaires you asked managers how many competitors do you have. But one of my interests with regard to the UK is, and one of my concerns is, that actually domestically it's actually levels of competition are lower compared to, let's say, the US. And I know there's a big issue at the moment with regards to inflation, and I'm a bit concerned that Mervyn King has sort of drunk the Bernanke Kool-Aid of the structural and global deflationary trends, but I'm just curious from a UK domestic point of view is, how do economists measure levels of competition within an economy? Uh, Nico McDonald, uh, I work in the creative industries policy area and I also wrote a co-wrote manifesto called Big Potatoes, the London Manifesto for Innovation. Um, I had one question for John, which is that you didn't address the sort of macro factor, which is the kind of long-term tendency for larger firms to be less productive and more mature economies to be a bit less productive over time, which seems to be a kind of broader macro factor, which uh, I think uh, needs addressing. Uh, and I think it was interesting that you counterposed, you sort of talked about productivity and innovation, but sort of innovation in productivity where Jonathan talked more about innovation in creating new types of things. And I think there's an important differentiation to make between doing, doing the thing right, which is 
being more productive and doing the right thing, which is actually creating new kinds of value. Uh, and creating new kinds of value actually can address the growth issue because actually if people have cheaper things to consume or uh, needs are displaced by uh, new solutions, then actually the cost of living decreases in a way. And, and my final question to you is, is there a bigger question? Is actually is Britain antipathetic to growth in the first place? Is the question kind of moot because we're into sustainability and reducing consumption? Um, you know, do we want growth anyway, even if you've got the solution? Okay, so let's, take, let's, take, let's take a couple more. There's one here. Is there anybody else? And one over the back there. Um, my name is Chris Clegg. I'm a private investor. Um, I, I'd like to uh, come back to the uh, rationale for um, austerity and the strategy, which is what you've been talking about for austerity. With respect to the rationale, um, I'd like to challenge the comment that you made that uh, perhaps uh, responding to the bond markets was uh, somewhat irrational and excessive. Um, one thing uh, I can say as a, somebody involved in bond markets is that the bond markets are highly focused on the speed limit of uh, debt GDP um, debt trajectories. And uh, the UK and the US are both coming up very closely to uh, the key speed limit as uh, defined by Reinhardt and Rogoff, um, which is 90% debt to GDP. Um, the second thing is really the strategy that the UK is following versus the strategy that the US is following. Uh, clearly, uh, the austerity path um, hasn't yet arrived in the US. We have seen a, a budget this week which is uh, somewhat uh, fiscally uh, prudent, but uh, nothing like what uh, is being proposed in the UK. Um, one thing I know is that um, in the US, uh, up until November, the um, head of the uh, President's Council of Economic Advisor, Christina Rogoff, had done work on the multiplier effect of uh, fiscal austerity. Uh, basically, uh, the judgment, as I understand it, as to why the U.S. has taken the path that it has is that uh, the multiplier is a very high number, above three, uh, of austerity. So you cut 6%, potentially the impact on GDP could be as high as 18. Um, so I'd like to get your, your thoughts on the difference between the U.S. and uh, the U.K. on strategy. Okay, let's take one at the back there, and then we'll get some responses. Hello. Uh, my name is Nail. Uh, you, you mentioned you, that commercial, commercialization of technology innovation is weak, and mentioning R&D and uh, patents, and also... Uh, um, you, you mentioned that innovation is not only R&D but also a set of uh, intangible assets like management. And uh, my question is, uh, um, is it possible like, to create kind of um, um, a microeconomic environment in the UK like, or creating a kind of um, uh, venture capital attraction for, for example, in the U.S., in the United States, in California, they have very good, like, cooperation of business and uh, science and also uh, technological uh, innovation. And 
is it possible to attract venture capital or encourage businesses to um, launch more uh, venture capital in the UK? Thank you. Okay, thanks. Um, back to you, John. Okay, well, thanks for all those questions. Uh, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to answer them adequately, <laughs> so I'll keep drawing from the hard ones. Um, so the first question Matthew asked on uh, the, the, the kind of type of firms or type of managers in the US, I mean, we, uh, what, one thing we try and do to control for that is um, we can control for the size of the firm, the age of firms, the industry of the firms, all those other things which could account for the, the US management gap. And it turns out not really to be those type of things. I mean, there are, there are some of those differences between countries, but the graphs I showed you, uh, you'd see the same pattern uh, even after controlling for all of those, those, those additional, those obviously those controls. On, on the question on uh, the, how you measure competition, it's very hard. So I showed you one crude measure. Uh, we, you, know, you can also think about things about openness to trade. We also try that. Measures of, um, so you know, the more open you are to trade, the higher competition is. Um, your, the profitability of the industry, that's very high. The rent's very high, so less competition. What, one nice thing that we've recently done looking at management, I think, is looking in the healthcare sector. So their competition is really like the number of hospitals around you, you might think, is associated with greater competition. And you can use as a natural experiment the fact that if you're living in a marginal political constituency, your hospital will never be closed. <laughs> that is one thing which is guaranteed because uh, you know, the, cost, the political cost of closing a hospital in a marginal constituency is very high. So you can use that fact as something which you can create a kind of experiment from that. And when you do that, you find, that, again, the causal effect of competition on, on, on management is very strong and positive. Um, there was a, a, a kind of question on, for Mr. McDonald, there was a series of questions, but you know, I think the heart of this is, is this, this kind of trade-off. So could you do things which kind of made you more efficient and productive for the given set of goods, but uh, sacrificing kind of future growth? So you're getting, say, take the example of management, you get these super management things which make you produce everything more efficiently, but you don't come up with a great new idea. Google would be, you know, maybe the tablet managed, but they're coming with lots of ideas. And I think, you know, we don't know, I don't know the answer to that. My, my sense, actually, is these are often compliments rather than substitutes. So if I, if I can get my firm managed particularly well and doing my ideas and research, that can actually be a very efficient way of actually producing new ideas. So I, we, haven't found a, we haven't found a big trade-off, personally, but I know in certain companies there may be examples of that. And I think, you know, I think the set of institutions around innovation versus efficiency you know, are really, really important questions. Um, Chris Clegg asked an uh, interesting question in terms of the bond, the bond market issue. So on the multiplier effect, um, clearly if you thought the multiple was as big as three, then we were in really big trouble now with austerity. I think it's likely the multiplier is lower in a, an open economy, a relatively open economy like the UK compared to a more closed economy like the US. So that is the positive side, the multiplier is a bit lower. On the negative side, people, I think, often underestimate the, the, the danger we're in because the estimates are often taken assuming no one else is going through the same austerity program. So when people talk about Canada or Sweden growing out of problems with the top austerity programs, they forget that at that, those times, other economies were not also having top austerity programs. Whereas now we're in a situation where many countries are, are kind of uh, coordinating on having austerity programs and monetary policy is, is, is not likely to be strong. So that, I think, makes the effects, the multiplier effect, pushes in the other direction. So I, I'm, you know, as I said, I, I'm pretty worried. I, I mean, I do think you're right to say, I mean, I'm not at all saying we should not be at all concerned with debt-to-GDP ratios. 
Um, I do think that the US situation is a bad one, where they're not seriously taking the problem of deficit reduction um, enough. But as Jonathan said, I, I think the counterfactual is not you know, doing the US versus doing the Osborne. It's kind of you know, doing the Osborne versus doing an alternative, which is the darling thing. So I, that, that's the kind of counterfactual I would, I, I would prefer. And I think in terms of that judgment, um, I, I, I'm, I'm more on the side of uh, a slightly slower, 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 slower path than, than we're currently on. Mm. I think if you look over the longer run, if you look at the kind of, you know, the, um, the, 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 the CBO's forecast of where things will go, unless a more serious deficit reduction plan is put in, in place in the US, there will be an increase in the debt to GDP ratio because, you know, in the medium run, it's, gonna, it's, it's not going to be well under control unless there is some, some action from, from Congress. Okay, Jonathan, do you want to quick? It's getting late in the day, so I'll just be very quick. Um, I think the questions about venture capital and innovation and things like that, we need to better understand the innovation process. In my opinion, that's tied around things like intangibles and so forth. We don't really understand very well innovation in innovation itself and the extent to which scientists can use that. Uh, on, the, on the question about the multiplier, it seems to me that where you have a situation like we do of centralized wages and pensions, the multiplier effects are just very, very different. Uh, finally, the question at the back, gentlemen asked about measuring um, competition. Um, so I should declare an interest. I've just spent eight years on the Competition Commission arguing with British Airports Authority about their airports. And uh, how you measure competition is you employ me at a very <laughs> high consultancy rate, and I'll help you out. Okay. On that note, I think we should probably <laughs> conclude. Um, I'd like, just like to thank everybody for coming to what was obviously a very good, um, a good uh, lecture as part of the LSE Works um, series. And if we could just thank the speakers in the usual way, that would be great.